Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. If you are new to Life Church, I want to extend a welcome to you. Uh, I'm Roger, the senior pastor here. Today, of course, is Easter morning. Uh, we celebrate the fact on Easter morning that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And to, this morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection. Um, the resurrection is the central miracle of Christianity. It is the very center, it is the very the heart of our faith. Um, everything hinges on this one event. Um, if the resurrection never happened, then Christianity is just mythology. And billions of people um, in the past and billions of people now have been and are being deceived. If it did happen, then everything Jesus did and said is true. And believers have the guarantee of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. The resurrection is either one of the most horrible, cruel, vicious hoaxes ever put on, or it is the most amazing fact in all human history. This morning I want to present the evidence that Jesus Christ did exactly what he predicted he would do. That on the third day after his crucifixion, he rose from the dead. Acts 1.3 says this, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. That's what I want to do this morning, is prove to you that Jesus actually came back to life. So the first thing I want us to look at is the empty tomb. Bible teaches that after professional executors crucified Jesus, his corpse was placed in a solid rock tomb. Then his body was covered with about 75 pounds of spices. And he was like extensively wrapped in strips of linen cloth. And this is in John 19, verses 39 to 40. It says this, with Joseph of Arimathea came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following, Jesus, following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. So a very large stone was then rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. And here's a picture of what that might have looked like. So the most detailed information I could find uh, on the weight of this stone was this. Um, archaeological records list the radius of the rolling stone size as somewhere between 0.7 and 0.8 meters. Uh, and then the width of that stone, because it's sort of like a disc, uh, somewhere between 0.3 and 0.4 meters. 
So if you remember your math, uh, that produces a volume of about 0.5 cubic meters, right? The area of a circle, remember this, pi r squared. Yes, I'm a math nerd, and so I get to, every once in a while, geek out. Uh, so the area of a circumference of a circle is pi times the rate pi is number 3.1415, I could go on. Uh, pi times the radius squared, and then now we want to find the volume of a disk, so then we multiply it by the thickness of that, right? So granite apparently weighs about 5,500 pounds per cubic meter, um, and so if you do the math, it gives the weight of that stone being approximately 2,750 pounds. So after this rock was placed, put in place, several Roman soldiers were assigned to guard the tomb. How many soldiers? Well, Pilate said this in Matthew 27, verse 65. He said, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So a guard, I looked it up, is somewhere between four and 16 soldiers. So some pictures you may have seen of the, of the tomb kind of shows one or two uh, men guarding the tomb, you know, with spears in their hands. Uh, but there would have been more. Also, Matthew 27, 66 tells us that in addition to the Roman guard, they put a tamper-proof official Roman seal on the stone. It says this. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So anyone who happened to like make it past the Roman soldiers uh, would have had to break this seal, which would have very terrible consequences, right? So in spite of all these precautions, the stone, the size of the stone, the soldiers, and the seal, the tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. When the first people arrived to peer in, right, they, they saw only one thing, the blood-stained burial cloths. Like as if Jesus had just dematerialized like right through them. The empty tomb that's what we're talking about right now. The empty tomb is a powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Several theories have been proposed uh, to explain the fact that Jesus' body was absent from the tomb that first Easter day, but none of them are convincing. First, uh, it's suggested that Jesus didn't die on the cross, right, that he just recovered in some way sitting there inside the tomb. But if any of you have seen Mel Gibson's uh, film, The Passion, right, you, you have an idea of what it means to undergo a Roman flogging and crucifixion. People didn't survive that. Flogged with a, a scourging whip that tore out flesh. Um, forced to carry his own cross, right? Probably weighing over 100 pounds over his, his back, right? Iron spikes, about five to seven inches driven through his arms, right? Suffering and dying on a cross due to blood loss, 
and asphyxiation. 1 Peter 2.24 says this. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Here's another interesting piece of evidence. Uh, John 19, verses 32 to 34 say this. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. So the common method of ending a crucifixion was crurefracture, right? The breaking of the bones of the legs, right? This, pre this prevented the victim from being able to push themselves up to take a breath, right? So that the tension couldn't be relieved from the muscles in their chest and the victim would just suffocate. They couldn't breathe anymore, right? So the legs of the two thieves were broken. But when the soldiers approached Jesus, they saw that it wasn't necessary. Apparently, just to make sure that he was dead, the soldier pierced Jesus' side with his spear. And according to one doctor I looked up, it would have been thrust in between his ribs upward through the pericardium and into the heart. And so what came out was a waterly, 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 watery, there it is, watery fluid uh, from the pericardial sac that's surrounding the heart uh, and the blood from within the heart. Right? So according to uh, this doctor, th this is conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died. And not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, right, but of heart failure uh, due to shock and constriction of the heart by the fluid surrounding the heart in, in the pericardial sac. But of course, they didn't have that medical evidence at the time, right? They were just simply writing uh, what they observed. Some people say, well, maybe, maybe the disciples stole the body. Uh, and then they... They, like the disciples just began a rumor that Jesus was resurrected. But laying aside the fact that the tomb was guarded, and it wasn't very probable that considering like the state of mind that the disciples were in, that they would even be able to do this. I mean, they had to have been depressed, disillusioned, right? Think of all the things that they had been through, and now the one that they had been following Right? The one they had pinned all their hopes on was now dead, right? And now they're in fear of their own lives, right? So all of this seems far-fetched when you consider that the, uh, this group of frightened men uh, like would have had to overpower at least four, maybe up to 16, armed, trained Roman soldiers, right? They'd have to roll away a boulder weighing over 2,700 pounds, right? They'd have to dispose of the body and then come up with a story about his resurrection, a story that they would eventually end up sacrificing their lives for. None of that seems very likely. 
Other people said, well, maybe it was the authorities who took the body. That's not a probable theory, because if they had the body, like all they had to do when people were saying, Jesus is risen from the dead, was to say, no, he's not, here's the body, right? Look how quickly we were shown the bodies of Saddam Hussein's sons when they were killed, right? Or Saddam Hussein himself when he was killed, right? Because they wanted us to know that he was dead. Other people say, well, maybe robbers took the body. That's not likely either. Like when the disciples arrived at the tomb, Jesus' body was gone, and the only thing of value was still there, the grave clothes. The robbers would have taken the grave clothes. Instead, the grave clothes were lying there, much like a, a caterpillar's cocoon when the butterfly has emerged. And the cloth that had covered Jesus' head had been folded up and placed in a separate place. When the disciples saw all of that, they believed. Christianity rises or falls on the empty tomb. Critics can't explain it away. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then where's the body? Leaders of every other religion died and stayed dead. Right? Their bones are decaying in the ground. That's not the case with Jesus. He claimed that he would rise from the dead on the third day, and that's what he did. The next piece of evidence is this. Uh, there were multiple witnesses. So the early Christians didn't believe Jesus had risen just because of the empty tomb. They believed because they saw him with their own eyes. Right? When they talked to others about Jesus, they didn't say, we found an empty tomb. They said, we saw Jesus alive. After his resurrection, he made an appearance to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem. He appeared to the disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he walked side by side with two men as they were making their way down the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the disciples and ate a meal with them. He appeared to his brother James. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. Uh, Paul says this. I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Sometimes people say, well, maybe it was a hallucination. But yeah, pe people do hallucinate, but it's highly unlikely that even two people would have the same exact hallucination. 
Jesus appeared on several different occasions, and on one occasion, as I just read to you, he appeared to over 500 people at one time, right? 500 people could not have the same hallucination. And then look at the nature of the appearances. Hallucinations are, are subjective. They don't have an objective reality, right? But look at this. It's in Luke 24, verses 35 through 43. It says, then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. I always think that's cool. Like Jesus shows up. It's like amazing miracle. And he's like, hey, you got a fish? <laughs> I'm, I'm hungry. <laughs> it's awesome. All right, so another compelling argument for the resurrection is this. It is the immediate impact that it had. Um, here were a group of disciples who were, as I said, they were discouraged, they were depressed, they were fearful, they were hiding, right? And something occurred that totally changed them, so much so that they went around telling everybody, we have seen Jesus. Jesus is alive, right? And then you get to this historical phenomenon we know about, which is, which is the birth and the growth of the Christian church, right? And it's incredible because beginning with just a, a group of basically like fishermen, tax collectors, right? There's this encounter with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and an explosion of church growth that spreads all around the globe all the way to this very day, right? You cannot explain all of that without resurrection power. Those who met the resurrected Jesus had their lives completely transformed. The resurrection is validated by many things, but it is validated by the changed lives of Jesus' followers. Something happened. Something happened so powerful and so radical that it just completely reoriented the life and the direction of all of Jesus' followers. Right? After Jesus' death, after he was crucified, the disciples, they just scattered, right? The Bible tells us that they were gathered in a locked room. They were filled with fear. Their leader had been executed. Like, what was going to happen to them now? Would they be hunted down and killed? John 20, verses 19 through 20, uh, lets us in on the scene that will change their lives forever. 
So it says, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. So instead of confronting the disciples for fleeing, Jesus appeared to them and he said, peace be with you. Like this overwhelming peace melted their own guilt, melted their own feelings of failure. Their fear was replaced with joy. Peter transformed from a coward who had denied Christ three times to Peter, the rock, the one to whom Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. These ordinary men were transformed into the most effective missionaries this world has ever seen. Let me ask you a question. What motivated them to go everywhere and proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Was it money? Was it power? Was it fame? No. Every one of them had come from a place of doubt and confusion and fear to a place of faith and conviction and determination. Right? No matter what the cost was, no matter the ridicule, no matter the scorn, no matter the attacks, no matter the injustices that people sent their way. Look at all the ways the disciples were martyred and see if it sounds like, like they were just making up the resurrection. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia with a halberd. A halberd's like a, a long axe with like a pointy spear on the end. Mark had a rope placed around his neck and he was dragged through the streets until he was dead. Peter, Simeon, uh, Andrew, and Philip were crucified. Uh, James was beheaded. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Thomas was stabbed with spears. James the Just was stoned to death. Jude was clubbed to death, and his head was destroyed with an axe. And Paul was beheaded. Might I suggest that the only thing that could have possibly changed their lives so dramatically was the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every one of these guys could have lived if they just said, he's dead. But they refused, even to the point of torture, even to the point of death, they refused because they knew that he was alive. The fourth evidence is this. Not only did Jesus' resurrection radically impact the lives of the disciples, uh, Jesus' life-changing power has transformed the lives of billions of people around the world, even to this very day. So the combined testimony of changed lives attributed to the risen Christ uh, runs into the billions. 
So in 2010, they tried to estimate the total number of Christ followers who have ever lived um, all the way up to that present day. It was estimated to be about 2.2 billion people. So throughout history and from every race and every tribe and every language and every nationality in the world, despite all of our various denominational backgrounds, followers of Jesus Christ are united in our conviction that Jesus Christ is still alive today. Right? Jesus has radically changed my life. And since I've been here now at Life Church, two years now, right, I've met with most of you, sat down with you, heard your stories, heard your, uh, your heart. And I know that he has changed your life as well. So after investigating the evidence of the resurrection, the question that ultimately comes down to, the, it, it comes down to is this. So what? What difference does the resurrection make in my life or in yours? Right? I mean, we can just hear this truth and just go on about our lives without it impacting anything. The resurrection answers at least five questions that we have. The first question is this. Is it true? And how do we know it's true? So like Thomas, uh, he wouldn't believe, right, unless he could actually touch the wounds of Christ. The evidence for the resurrection can lead us to a place, to a belief um, that changes everything, right? Second question the resurrection answers is this. Am I all alone? Does anyone really care about me? Do I matter? The resurrection proves that you matter deeply to God. Jesus died for you as payment for your sins, and he rose again to demonstrate how important you are to him. Third question that the resurrection answers is this. How can I find the power to change? Why can't I break all these bad habits that I have in my life? Well, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now available to you. It can transform you just the, way, the same way he transformed those first disciples. An encounter with the living Christ... An encounter with his resurrection power can transform you like you have never experienced before. The fourth question that the resurrection answers is the question of guilt. Of guilt. How can I get rid of the guilt for everything that I've done? Maybe you have a failed marriage. Maybe... Uh, if you're really honest, you didn't raise your kid right. Maybe you committed an abortion. Maybe you're a veteran and what you did in the war still haunts you at night. 
Maybe you're a veteran and you, you just feel guilty that you survived while your buddies didn't. Those are just a few examples. But whatever you've done, whatever you feel guilt over, the good news is that the resurrection of Jesus is proof is proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. He is your Savior, and his resurrection proves it. The fifth question that the resurrection answers is this. What, what happens when we die? Well, because of what Jesus did you now know that there is eternal life beyond the grave. It's not just a theory. It is a proven reality. Jesus is alive and death doesn't have the last word. Right? If you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, then your resurrection into his presence, into his kingdom, is inevitable. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming, right? And if you've not put your faith and your trust in Jesus yet, well, it's time to make that decision right now. It is time to encounter the living Christ for yourself. If you want irrefutable proof of the resurrection, then let Jesus Christ change your life. Open yourself up to him. Turn to him right now. Embrace the living Lord Jesus. In John 20, when Peter and John uh, ran into the empty tomb, they were surprised. They were startled. And it, says that, it says that John saw and believed. The word here is not the one used when we see like something in the distance or even something up close. It means to see with an inner light that leads to a conclusion. In other words, the light came on for him. Has the light come on for you this morning? If so, then take the next step and believe. Put your faith in the resurrected Jesus and ask him to save you from your sins, give you a new life, and by the power of the Holy Spirit to change you, to transform you from the inside out. That is what he does. I want to close in prayer, but if you have not made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, you can do that right now. Or maybe you've drifted away from the Lord, right? And you sense you sense that he's drawing you back. He's drawing you back into a relationship with him. And it's not religion. It's love. He loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Love. If you are ready to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, uh, you can pray this silently along with me. This, this prayer, let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Jesus, thank you for making me, for loving me, 
even when I've ignored you and gone my own way. I need you in my life. I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Help me to understand it more. Lord, I want to follow you from this day onward. Please come into my life and make me a new person inside. I accept your gift of salvation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me grow in Christ and fulfill the calling you have in my life, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.